Now let's uh, do the scripture reading. Let's all rise together as we read God's word. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I'll read verse 1. You guys can read verse 2 and so forth. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals of the Lord, uh, the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. Verse 3, But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desire for, for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Let's read it all together. Then the eyes of both them and were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Okay, this is God's word. Okay, all right. Uh, before you sit down, let's greet one another. Say hello. We're glad you're here. Let's be God's miracle. Yeah, good to see you. Thank you so much. So as I said today, you are getting a special treat. Uh, well, Pastor, you know, I've been preaching for a few weeks now. Now today, let's uh, hear God's word through Pastor Charlie. As he comes up, let's give him just welcoming, welcome back, and we, we, we love you. Let's give him a big round of applause. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, when I was a little boy, I used to love to draw pictures. I used to be pretty good at it, too. If you would gather up all my old friends, you ask them, they would say, yeah, that old Charlie crew, he sure knows how to draw. But do you ever remember when you were little and you would take out a sheet of paper and you're drawing and, and you make a mistake? What do you do when you make a mistake and you don't like suddenly what you see in your piece, piece of paper? Do you remember? Just immediately, you just crumple it up and you throw it away, and then you get a fresh sheet. You scrap it, right? And then you start drawing. And uh, as I got older, I started painting pictures on canvases. And I don't know if you ever worked with canvases, but canvases are not as cheap as paper. And so you're working with paint and canvases. So when I'm working with canvases, even if I start to mess up a little bit, I sit there and work with it patiently until I get it to the point where I like it. And when I'm satisfied and I don't feel like I can do any more to make it better, then I'm finished. And I put a frame in it and I put it on a wall. It becomes my own little masterpiece. I don't know if you ever draw or if you ever paint it. You know what I'm talking about. Now imagine God created everything with something far more costly than paint and canvas. He made inorganic matter, living things, and life itself. Since the beginning of this month, we've been hearing that everything, including the universe itself, was made by God, by Him simply speaking them into existence, and that He made them all in some total good. After He made those things, 
he sits back and he says, that's good, right? And on the sixth day, as a matter of fact, he made mankind. He made us in his own image, male and female. And he paused for a moment. He saw that it was very good, not just good. God was very pleased with his own work. Now, unlike us, though, when God creates, he makes no mistakes. He made everything perfectly and God's canvas is not like a fixed image. It's not like one drawing, one-dimensional thing or two-dimensional thing. He works with living creatures and ones like us made in his own image. We make our own decisions. And, uh, and moving along reality, we can sometimes make mistakes, right? So God's work, God's work is with infinitely more complex than drawing on a painting, on a page or painting on a canvas. Infinitely more complex. And today the Bible gives us a background of how God's perfect creation became imperfect. If, you, if you've reached uh, youth group age, if you're like around 12, 13 years old, that's when you begin to look at the world and you begin to realize, man, things are not as perfect, perfect as they could be. They're imperfect, right? Uh, as we experience it today, we have all kinds of catastrophes. We have natural disasters. Wars and pandemics. And every sin and evil in the world makes us wonder, did God really create all this? Did did he make everything like this this way? And the short answer is no. The short answer is no. God did not make it this way. But the Bible leads us to go a little bit deeper into his heart. If you look in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, God says to Adam, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. That's the only law that God gave. So initially, God grants Adam and Eve a great amount of freedom. They can eat from all parts of the garden. They have open, just freedom, right? And uh, they were also given meaningful labor. They could work and to till the soil, and they were, to, they were to take care of the garden. So they were, in a way, blessed in more ways than we can imagine. And other than that, there was just one law. God issued just one prohibition. Don't do this one thing. And what is the first thing that uh, human beings do? The one thing that we're not supposed to do, we do. That is what we see. We see in our text. What we see from our scripture is that human beings were made with the capacity to disobey. We have the capacity to disobey. That means God created, created us with the possibility for error. We were created fallible, although God is infallible. That was his perfect plan. And this is a major distinction between him and us in his perfect plan, just how he made it that way. Now... As we read the story, some of you may ask, what's the big deal about the fruit? Why does God make such a big deal about this fruit? But I want you to consider this seriously. It's not about food. It's not about whether this food was, whether this fruit was uh, poisonous or not. It is about the act of doing what is forbidden by God. In fact, if you were to replace the, the act of eating from the fruit, the forbidden fruit of good and, the knowledge of good and evil... To anything that later on he says don't do, 
I mean, it would still fit very well. When we're reading this story, this is not just a story about something that happened a long time ago in the beginning between Adam and Eve and God, but any single one of us. When our parents tell us not to do something, when the pastor strongly advises you against something and you do it anyway, that is, that is basically we're seeing an echo of that from, from, from the, the original time. So I will say it this way. Before Adam and Eve disobeyed, they both knew only good. You guys know what a relationship is good when, when both of you are not infringing on each other's rights and you keep respecting each other. And if you are in a loving relationship in that way, it's good. The relationship is good. But to put it another way, when Adam and Eve was, they were in obedience to God, good was all they knew. But since Eve ate of the fruit and gave some to her husband to take as well, that seal of goodness, that sacred bond and trust was broken. Now, for the first time, evil had entered the picture, and they knew what it means to disobey God, and this carries some serious repercussions. God gave man and his wife freedom to choose even if they were bound to make a mistake. And what we see in Scripture is that this freedom to choose, our freedom that God gave us to choose, was used not to do God's will, but to do our own will. And that is a sinful nature of us all. Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. So the first question that is addressed in our message today is, just what is sin? If you've been to church for a while, that is a language that we use pretty, pretty frequently. But if you're talking to unbelievers, what is this concept of sin? And sin is, quite simply, transgressing God's commands. If some of you guys ask, what, is, what does it mean to transgress? It means to infringe or go beyond the bounds or to cross the line. You guys have lines sometimes? Like when you're, you know, you know when you have a, your house churches, I don't know, back in the days when I first came here, you guys had this culture of roasting each other, joking around, right, making fun. And you're laughing and giggling and stuff. But don't you guys, like, joke a little too much and you cross the line and all of a sudden it's not funny anymore, nobody's laughing? Has that ever happened in your house churches? It has? Where you went too far, right? Well, this is a lot more serious than that. There was a line that was drawn, the one line that was drawn, and uh, there was a disobedience that was at work. Now, uh, Eve was led to this grievous error. She was not alone. But I want you to notice whenever we have, we commit a sin or an error, it's not just alone all the time, you know. She was deceived by that ancient and most crafty, most subtle serpent, Satan. And, and this, is the, this is how, he's, how he, he gets to, he manages to deceive Eve is, is to make, make, make her doubt God's word. Did God really say you cannot eat from any tree in the garden, which is not what God said at all. He actually says the opposite. You could eat from any tree in the garden. And uh, not only did the human beings have the capacity to disobey God, that was already kind of stacked against their favor. There was this agent of deception that was working against Eve. And of course, this doesn't lessen her fault, but very early on, we see that the temptations that are at work in disobedience. The first thing that was already at work 
before they actually even disobeyed is that in the desires of, of Eve in her heart, there was a desire to seek equality with God. They were already made in God's image, you see. But they wanted to have that equality. They wanted to have their eyes open and they wanted to decide for their own what was good or what was evil. And that was the only reason why that one prohibition was there in the first place. If we were made in the image of God, the only thing that was distinguished us as God and not God, as cre creator and creature, was that we were, not, we, were, we were not allowed to do one thing that God prohibits us from doing, right? And the second thing, the object itself, the fruit itself, was desirable. If you could eat something and it would make you wiser instantly, how many of you would not take that right here? You would. You have an immediate attraction to that possible capacity for like instant change where you would be able to take of it and then it's desirable and it's pleasing to the eyes is what it says. And of course, we have the third agent, the serpent, that made Eve doubt God's word. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent makes it seem like God is holding back something better from them. God already gave him the, the most that he could, and it's like the devil makes us believe that he's holding something back. So right after Adam and Eve had taken the fruit, the first thing that they noticed is that they were naked. Unlike how before they took the fruit, the scripture says very explicitly that they were naked, but they felt no shame. They were freely frolicking around in the garden, in, their, in, their, you know, in the nakedness into which they were born. They had no shame about it. But now, right after they disobey, what they feel is inadequate. They have to hide just they are. They can't be as they are. How many, how many of you are very comfortable in your skin? You're completely comfortable with how you are. How many of you are able to look at yourself in, the, in front of the mirror after a shower and you're like, this is me, I'm totally cool? Or, or do you feel like, oh, I got to cover up really right away? How many of you feel that way? The, the instinct is there. Like suddenly, after we're naked, we can't, we can't feel comfortable in our own skin. And this is the second question that is addressed in our message. Just how damaging is sin? How, how, how has sin been damaging to us? And the answer, answer is, it brought into our reality, our experience, shame and death. And alienation from God. Separation from God. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Even though the serpent did say, you shall not surely die. Death did enter into the reality with their disobedience. It is true that Adam lived to be as old as 930 years old. Unlike what the serpent claimed, however, both Adam and Eve surely died. They did die. They had to return to the earth. But even before the physical death entered the picture, we see the verses following in our text that the relationship between Adam and Eve and God had become strained, to say the least. You guys know the difference of having living out a day when you're having a good experience, good relationship with your with the people in your household, the people that are near you. When you have a when you have a strain, when you have a bad relationship, those days are longer and just unpleasant. It's when you have a good relationship that those days are better, right? Right away, 
with the disobedience, there was a strain in the relationship. Right in next verse 8, it says, uh, after our, our passage today, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what did they do? They hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. How many of you feel like you can hide from God? Nobody here can hide from God, right? As if, as if anyone could actually successfully hide from God, they're hiding from God, and God is asking, where are you? Do you guys, how do you read this? Do you go, where are you? Is that how, is that how you read it? God's going, where are you? Like they're play, the father playing hide and seek with their children. It's not that God does not know where they're at. When I read this, it's, it's more like he's asking the question. He's asking, do you know where you are? And this is where they were. I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. To the person who breaks God's law, the first thing that enters into the conscious mind is that in his naked state, he's not presentable to God. Now, knowing good and evil in his natural state Shame and fear is the first instinct before a holy God. So if you jog your, if you recollect, if you jog your memory, coming to God, the idea of God, you know, even before, even before you knew about Jesus, or natural instinct before a holy God, shame and fear, that's a natural response. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you to not eat from? So God asked, right, right away, we can see the damage that has been done already to the relationship. Now, Adam could have just answered, yes, I did. My bad, Lord, I ate. It was my fault. He could have just admitted that, but rather, he points the finger at God. It's a double blame game. It's the woman's fault, but if you must know, it's the woman. That woman that you put in here with me gave me some of the fruit, so I ate, right? It's a very different attitude. And just a, a chapter before, in chapter 2, when God, when God made Eve, he's like, this is the bone of my bones, the flesh of my flesh. Right after taking of the fruit, it's that woman that you put in with me. Before Adam could not hide his joy and enthusiasm, he's exuberant about Eve, but right after, right after taking of the fruit, he can't hide his resentment towards God. Man looks ways to shift his blame. But Eve's response is a little more matter-of-fact. She's more objective about it. The serpent deceived me, so I ate. And so what happens from here on is God does the opposite of blessing. God does the opposite of blessing. Unlike when God said, be fruitful and increase in number, he does the opposite. He curses, and this is a consequence of sin. Sin, bring, sin brings forth a curse. The serpent will live eating the dust of the earth all the days of its life. What does that mean? Adam was made from the dust of the earth, right? The serpent will feed on the death of humanity until its own end. What a horrible way to live. Can you imagine having to live that way? Can you imagine having to subsist and survive on the death of others? That's the devil. And for the woman... There's an increase of pain in childbirth. I wonder what childbirth would have been like before the fall. 
I'm sure a lot less painful, but the now is, is toil, painful toil to bring forth a, a baby. And between the man and the wife, there is a conflictive relationship dynamics. If you grew up in your household, I am sure even the best of moms and dads, you have watched them fight or bicker or quarrel about something at least once. While her desire, the woman's desire, runs contrary to the husband's, and her desire is constantly to dominate, to, to try to, to countermand what her husband says, God says simply that the husband will rule over her. That's the relationship dynamic as a result of the fall. And for the man, instead of eating freely from the garden, the trees in the garden, he's now subject to painful toil for sustenance. Have you guys ever done like really like long, arduous work, like a computer, uh, when you're doing like an essay? Like you're doing an essay for long hours and then your, your uh, automatic saving feature didn't work on your word, so it's just all gone, you know? And you have to turn it in like a few hours from now. I was like, oh, it's like those thorns and thistles of unproductive labor is a result of the cursed ground. Verse 19, God says to Adam, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now that's a curse. Death entered the picture of humanity, into the reality of humanity from that moment on. And that is the cost of disobedience of that one time. God's perfect reality fractures into what we see in the world today. Chaos enters into the picture. Everything starts to degrade and everything gets worse and worse as time goes by. And, uh, and here is some good news. I mean, when I, when I read this, I don't know if you feel the same way as me, but when I read this, there are some things that are kind of comforting about this. The problem of sin, which we're all born into, it had an origin outside of our own. You ever, you ever look at that and go, you know, it's not my fault. There is, the, the, the original sin goes way back before I was ever born, right? So there is a measure of comfort in that. I hope that you're able to read that because when you look at the mess around us, even in our own lives, we see that not all of it is our fault. There is something much bigger than us at work, right? It's not just a personal problem for which we are responsible for, but it's much larger than we are. It is a cosmic problem that also finds a solution from outside of ourselves. It is a solution that can only be solved by God. And this is where we get the great news. The sin does come with a great cost, a great sacrifice. That's the third point of today. The reason why Adam and Eve would certainly die after eating of the forbidden fruit is explained in Genesis 3.22. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat, and live forever. Have you guys ever thought about this? Gee, why does God have to ban us from the tree of life? You see, in the Garden of Eden, only the Creator is the one who can know good and evil. We were not authorized to know what evil was. But human beings, as the creatures, we cannot have equal status with God in that way. 
It is true we were made in God's image, but that does not mean that we could ever be equal to God, that we could decide what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. And that was the very reason why Satan was cast down in, in the very first place. You know, in the Genesis story, all we read about is the serpent that seduced Eve into disobedience, but there is something that has a background when we look at Isaiah chapter 14. Satan was one of the higher angels in God's court, in heaven's court. And he aspired to make himself like the most high. Satan was ambitious. He wanted equality with God. And that is very, the, re, the very reason why he was cast down. Look at what it says in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You have said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. And then verse 14 continues. This is Satan still talking. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. I want to just pause and say, how dare you, right? In verse 15, this is the result, the end result of that ambition that blind fury of an ambition. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. In the Hebrew language, this place of the dead is Sheol, often translated as hell, right? It's cast down into the nether regions because of that unending ambition, wanting to be equal with God. Allow me to suggest, and I want to submit to you, that that nature, that kind of tendency is in us all. We, want to, we all crave to be excellent. We want to be, I mean, I, I met a pastor who said, when I didn't know any better, I wanted to be God. I wanted to be way up there, right? So this is the cost of disobedience. It is death. Mortality is a result of Adam and Eve being banished from the garden. They have no longer access to the tree of life. For man, you know, to know evil and also to have eternal life will be no different than hell itself. If you were entertaining wicked and evil thoughts all the days of your life and you could not stop it and you had eternal life, you were to live forever, would not, would not that be hell in itself? That's exactly what that is. So when he banishes us from the garden, that's a protective measure of love. Verse 23, so the, so the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of Garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So far, we've heard the first, about the first tree from which the man took, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There is a second tree that enters the picture, the tree of life that we're banned from now, right? If the story just ended there in Genesis on the account of the fall, it would just be a, like a bleak allegory of why we live currently in such an imperfect world. Our world, where the grave seems to be the champion of us all. This world that along with all its desires and pleasures is tangled in evil, sin, and death. Now it is because of Adam and Eve taking and eating of the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, why we wind up with human beings being seemingly locked into this epic tragedy. There's no way out. But here is the good news if we should examine closely. 
As I have I've already explained to you, the sin nature, it, it has an origin apart from us, from our own will. We were all born into this. I did not choose this, right? And it is comforting for uh, how us as a species, all our imperfections and the deep seed of rebelliousness, it goes a long way back beyond our choices and our character. There is something that is kind of comforting about that. And as we read today in the human account of the fall, we also get an explanation of why things are as they are in the imperfect status. When people ask, why is there evil in this world? Our story explains why there is evil in this world. Sin, sin entered into a reality. We, we exercise freely the, the capacity to disobey, right? So this is the second thing that comforts us, but not nearly as much as when we find that God has offered the solution to the problem of human sin. Collectively, we know that there is this anxiety about us. The human sin does have an origin, but we had wronged God. That's the point. When we sin, we wrong God. When we do something that God tells us not to do, we're wronging Him. And uh, with that knowledge also comes despair. Oh no, we wrong the all-powerful God. What are we to do? How can we choose rightly from here on if the original sin has probably changed our DNA? We got a taste of what it's like to disobey, so what if all we could do from now on is disobeying? Here's a solution that God had planned and coded right into the scripture in the curse against the serpent. He left a big clue as how he plans to redeem humankind. If you look at Genesis 3.15, you might have heard this reference as the Proto-Evangelion. It's the first gospel that's embedded into the very curse that God pronounces against the serpent. God said, I'll put enmity between you, you the serpent, right? He's cursing the serpent now. And the woman and, the offspring, and between your offspring, which can also be translated as seed, between your seed and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Let's fast forward thousands of years later after this account. After the flood, after Abram, after Moses, after David, after God reset the calendar to the common era. We have Jesus enters the picture. He sends his one and only son to the people of Israel to whom he uniquely revealed himself. The chosen people is in scripture. He spoke to the people about the kingdom of God. Jesus spoke to, uh, to, to people about the kingdom of God. Listen, folks, this is not a sealed system. This reality does have a way out. Follow me. He shows us the perfect way onto eternal life. And to demonstrate this possibility, that this is not an impossible feat. He had lived a life of obedience, a life of perfect obedience. Unlike any single one of us here, any human being throughout history, start beginning with Adam, that could not do, Jesus did. His life of obedience ended to the point of being nailed to that other tree. Listen to what Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 13. I'm reading from the ESV. It reads like this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The first tree in the garden had a fruit that when we took of it, we were banished from the garden as a result 
which had the, the tree of life. And death enters into our reality, to humanity, the physical reality that we experience as a result of us having no access to the tree of life. But in closing, I want to invite you to join me to the cross. Why don't you take a moment and close your eyes. Close your eyes and take yourselves to Calvary, where Jesus was suspended between the two thieves and between the heaven and earth on that tree, on the cross. It was a tree of life that was not planted in the garden, but rather outside of it in Calvary. On that tree hung Jesus, who asked for our forgiveness. He was the seed of the woman, for while he was conceived of God, he was born of a woman, the one and only like that. He was worthy to seek our forgiveness because he was the only one born of a woman who was not guilty. And unlike Satan, who wanted to ascend to the Most High, he was already the Most High. But being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something that would be used for his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Next Sunday when we gather together, I believe we're going to have communion service. When Jesus said that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood, what else could it mean than that we are to eat of the first fruit of the resurrection from the tree of eternal life? the empty cross of Calvary upon which he had crushed the serpent's head once and for all.